Now, um, while you guys are turning to chapter 6, um, give you a little, little backstory on me. So, freshman year in high school, not everybody here has been to an actual physical school, but for those of you who do, you might be able to relate to this. Um, you know, I was, I was kind of a skinny kid in, in uh, high school and stuff, and freshman year was a little bit rough, okay? Um, I was a marching band geek, so my day started early. You know, 7 o'clock, we're suited up and ready to go on practice for the, for the Friday football game. And I had some tough classes. Not only that, I don't know if you guys experienced a little bit of bullying when you were a kid, but, you know, I got pushed around a little bit. In fact, it was by the, some of the same kids that pushed me around in middle school. So it was, it was interesting. Our campus was kind of weird. It was a long and skinny campus. And my first regular class the day after marching band was German. So way down here at this end of camp campus. And if, if you've ever experienced class changing, right, you have about 50 minutes of class. And in our campus, we had seven minutes to get from class to class. So I was at this extreme end of campus for German, and I'd honors English way at the other extreme of the campus. So get done with this class, and you have to hustle to get to the other end of campus. Now, my dream at the time, okay, was to get an appointment to the U.S. Naval Academy. If any of you have ever looked into that or thought about it, it's tough. Any given year, there's only a few people allocated from each state and from other sources that can actually get into the academy. Your academics have to be just spot on. You have to have all these curricular activities. All these, it's, it's pretty hard to get into, whether it's the Naval Academy, the uh, Air Force Academy here in town, or, or West Point. Every one of those tough classes I was taking mattered. Now, as the fall term wore on, that pressure began to take its toll. You know, I'm a little guy. I'm a freshman. It's a, you know, little fish in a big pond, right? And so, as a lot of us do, right, I kind of fell into a habit of complaining, you know. And, and I'd get up to, to my English class where I had a lot of friends, and so I'd be chatting it up and complaining. And, and some of that complaining was directed at that English class. I mean, it was tough. We had a lot of books to read, a lot of essays to write. And my teacher became aware of it. So he, he let it go for a little while. But one day he called me up to his desk. That's always kind of intimidating. And he sternly called me out. And he gave me an ultimatum. He said if I couldn't handle the workload, he'd arrange for a transfer into another English class. And you can imagine with the track I was hoping to go on, that could have very easily derailed my dreams to get into the academy. But he said, if I wanted to say, knock off the complaining and buckle down. He could have just kicked me out, but he gave me a second chance. We see that a lot in Scripture. When Adam and Eve sinned, God could have killed off all of mankind right then and there. He would have been fully justified in doing so. They disobeyed God. They sinned against the holy God and deserved to die for their betrayal of him and their disobedience. Of course, while they felt the consequences of their sin, God in his mercy delayed their physical death. In essence, he gave them a second chance, and he gave mankind a second chance through his promise to Eve that Jason talked about. Cain got a second chance as well. He should have been put to death for killing his brother. And throughout Scripture, we see God giving second chances, delaying judgment 
to give man the opportunity to repent. And he's still doing that in our day as well. Now, the problem with his delaying judgment is that we get complacent in our sins. You know, those, those who don't know God will try to deny his existence, and, and they'll come up with all kinds of justifications for their sins. Some get pretty good at it. And for others, deep down, they still feel ashamed of their sins. Even those who, don't, who do know God, myself included, will find ways to justify sinful heart attitudes and behaviors. But as I mentioned, folks, God is both a God of mercy and a God of justice. And at some point, the stench of our sins becomes too great, and he must act to restore justice. As we see today in the familiar story of Noah, you don't want to be on the receiving end of that justice. Let's pray. Father God, as we address this familiar material from your word, I pray that it wouldn't just go over our heads, that we would see what you would have us see in it, that we would see your justice and see your mercy, see the grace and the hope that you've given us in Christ. That would, it would change us. It would change our view on how we kind of sweep those little sins under the rug that we would take them seriously because we long to glorify you and live lives that honor you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, of course, Jason briefly touched on the well-known story of Cain and Abel. There's a little more of the story that unfolds in chapters 4 and 5 that helps give us a little context to some of today's passages. Now, of course, God confronts Cain about Abel's murder in much the same way he did Adam and Eve. And similarly, Cain receives punishment and grace from God. Cain is cast out from the region where Adam and Eve settled and ends up somewhere east of Eden. Despite Cain's sin, God promises to protect him as he goes out into the world. Yet Cain's actions and lack of repentance show us his continued rebellion against God. Of course, Cain married and had children, and we see the same sinful patterns emerge in his offspring. Adam and Eve, of course, are still around. They continue to be fruitful and multiply, and their offspring include another son, Seth. Now, in Luke's gospel, we see that Seth is named in the genealogy of Jesus. That's pretty cool. It would seem that some of the elect of God can be traced through Seth's line from Adam all the way to Jesus. Now, maybe you're wondering where all these other people came from, right? We started with Adam and Eve, and all of a sudden we've got Cain and Abel and Seth. Abel's gone, but we've got Cain and Seth, and they're marrying, right? Well, the logical conclusion from the historical narrative of the text is that they were additional offspring of Adam and Eve. The implication of Adam and Eve being given the charge to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth would seem to be that the genetic code for every tribe and nation was embedded by God in their DNA. That makes it impossible, folks, to justify racial prejudice on biblical grounds because at the end of the day, we're all descended from Adam and Eve. And as Jason pointed out last week, we all have both the Imago Dei and the sin nature born into us. 
Now, because that process of disease, decay, and death had only just entered the world, it could be that their DNA had not yet been corrupted to the point where intermarriage would have produced harmful results in their offspring as we see today. The fact that Adam was recorded as having fathered Seth when he was 130 years old, and he lived a whopping 930 years, imagine that, almost 1,000 years. It would seem to support that supposition. Now, his offspring are also recorded as living for hundreds of years. And the generally decreasing trend in lifespans that is recorded in chapters 4 and 5, it, it gives a little bit of support to the hypothesis that the increasing effects of disease are starting to take root in mankind. So we're seeing shorter lifespans. Now, as we begin our reading of chapter 6, it would seem that there was a decidedly evil line through Cain and a generally good line through Seth. Let's see how that plays out. So chapter 6, verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, when I was looking into this, I found that there are several traditions around just who were the sons of God and the daughters of man. From the background of chapters 4 and 5, the, the one that makes sense to me based on the text is that the sons of God were the offspring of Seth and the daughters of man were the offspring of Cain. But see, as these two clans intermixed and intermarried, it seems that the sinful influence of Cain's line dominated, and evil spread quickly. The same sort of corruption haunted the Israelites, right? When you look through the Old Testament, remember how they disobeyed God's specific command and they intermarried with the, the heathen people of the surrounding nations? And what happened? They worshiped false gods. They drifted from the right worship of the one true God into idol worship. This is a caution echoed more broadly by Paul in 2 Corinthians with his warning about being unequally yoked with unbelievers. It seems the temptation to sin is strong and our need for a savior is great. Now the ancient Hebrew, if you look into it, makes this bit about 120 years a little bit unclear. See, if there's a few alternate translations of, of that verse that go like this. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive or contend with man for that he, is, he also is flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. Now, again, looking at the text, Noah and many of his descendants are recorded as living well beyond 120 years. So this is not a 120-year limit on how long man can live, even though we don't see people living that long even today. But if we account for the nonlinear nature of ancient writing and the context of the passage, it would seem that that 120-year period was when he would execute judgment 
on the evil that had so prevailed upon the earth. So God again showed grace to us undeserving humans with this second chance. All right. Some people avoid this when they're preaching, but I'm going to try to deal with it here uh, or in a little bit. The whole Nephilim thing, right? Okay, verse 4. I'm going to get to that a little bit later because um, I think we need a little bit more context uh, for that to make sense. So continuing on, verse 6. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now, if you read this at face value, not knowing anything about the character of God, it comes across a little like, like this sin wasn't anticipated by God. But of course, God, we know, is changeless and sovereign. So he knew it would happen and allowed it to happen. So why would he regret his own action to create man? Well, let's, let's take a hint from the New Testament here in Hebrews 12. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hmm. It would seem that although God knew all the grief that we humans would cause him right from the start, he thought the whole effort worthwhile. I suppose it's similar to athletes who train hard to win a medal or a significant sporting event. They spend years dealing with the pain of tearing down and building up muscles, disciplined eating, and regimented, regimented training sessions away from family and friends. They face both disappointing losses and victories along the way. And after they win their prize, many experience the juxtaposition of both joy and regret. Joy at having reached their goal and regret as they look back and count the cost of the achievement. Now, like any analogy, right? Comparing God's reaction of regret to his initial reaction of calling his creation good with athletics, yeah, kind of seems to lack some depth. But, you know, given the finite limitations of language and our infinite God, right? Sometimes scripture uses what theologians, theologians call anthropopathic expressions to convey ideas in ways that we can grasp. Thank you, thank you. And, and what I mean by anthropopathic, okay, big, big theological word, it's referring to the use of human emotions and knowledge and experience to approximate, right, something on the spiritual plane. I mean, this is an infinite God we're talking about. We only have so many words and, and ways that we can try to conceptualize things. It, it's like Jason loves to use the one times one times one illustration of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, Right? God in three persons. One God, three persons. But that's the best art. We still can't quite put that in a box. We don't quite get that. Um, it's the limitations of our mind. So we use these kind of illustrations to, and God uses them in scripture to help us understand a little bit about him. Now you may ask, why would he allow it to happen? Well, the text doesn't specifically say. And we have to trust that even though it brought him feelings of regret, it was a necessary part of his plan of salvation for mankind. You know, we can take another hint from the New Testament to help us understand how and why things take place. 
This is from Romans 8. We should all know this one. We know that for those who love God, all things, bad and good, all things, work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I mean, come on. Knowing that, right, doesn't, doesn't make life's ups and downs any easier, right? It's really hard for us to grasp sometimes how God can be in sovereign control when everything around us seems to be in such chaos. But as Jason pointed out last week, trust God's word for God's word is trustworthy. And when we do that and think about these things in the context of God's word, we can step back a bit and, and it, it seems here that God is, was testing man by allowing temptation. And that testing proved man's lack of quality. Now, something needed to be done to satisfy the demands of God's justice. How could a holy God, of course, put up with such rampant wickedness? But again, amongst the wickedness, there was hope. As we see time and again in Scripture, God always preserves a remnant who stay true to him in the face of temptation. Here's what the, the next verse says in, uh, in Genesis. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So despite the rampant sin around him, Noah remained faithful. Doesn't mean he didn't sin, but he was faithful. And I love the hearkening back to God's relationship with Adam and Eve here before the fall. Noah walked with God. I think that's what we all desire to do, right? To be so intimate with our Father that we can walk through life with God. Continuing in verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt. He's repeated it twice there. So folks, this is bad stuff. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And it seems that more than just mankind had become corrupt. In talking to Noah, God emphasized that all flesh had corrupted their way, and that the earth was filled with violence. Now that potentially implies that even the animals were not behaving as they should. Think about dangerous a bear is when it gets comfortable around humans. But note that what is in view here isn't just little white lies and gossip and those other little acceptable sins that we all kind of look the other way about, right? It seems that sin has taken its natural course because those little sins, right, they always grow. They always get bigger. That natural course has grown into sin's true destructive self with violence and corruption. But God, right? But God has a plan for preserving Noah and through Noah, mankind. Note that it wasn't an easy plan, right? Noah would have to do hard physical labor, as we'll find out in a minute. And he would have to endure this. Well, it doesn't say it in the text, but if We've all experienced this, right? When we stand up for God and doing things that he wants us to do, there's slander and mockery from those around us, right? And what was that plan? Build a boat, a ship, really. 
So God tells Noah, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits. Now, if you're an engineering geek like me, let's translate that. That's 450 feet or one and a quarter football fields, end to end, end zone to end zone. It's breadth, 50 cubits, 75 feet wide. Um, Sherilyn, could you, uh, thank you, perfect. And its length is 30 cubits or 45 feet. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. So on the screen behind me, this is the uh, ark that was recreated to the specifications here in Scripture. This is in Kentucky at the Ark Encounter. You see the little cars down by the, the, from the construction crews as they're building this thing? This is huge. Of course, the engineer in me wants to geek out on the practical realities of the Ark. We could spend a lot of time on this. For your sake, I will restrain myself, okay? <laughs> Just a few points of interest. Um, so could Noah have built such a huge ship? Okay, well, the skills of his forebears, as we learned in chapters four and five, included crafts that involved wood and metal. Okay, he had, the skills were available. Now, next slide, please. There's a lake in Italy called Lake Nemi. And particularly in the, in the 1920s, um, those lakes were drained because this ship and a sister ship were found in the lake. This is a Roman ship, so from Jesus' time, about AD 37, okay? The largest of the two ships, and you can see just how big this thing is relative to the people there, the largest of the two ships was 240 feet long and 79 feet wide, okay? So it seems like shipbuilding crafts would have potentially been around that could have done this. Now, what about actually building it? Well... There certainly were craftsmen among his neighbors that he could have hired. And, of course, Noah, we know, has three sons. And 120 years, right, we talked about that, 120 years to build it. So it seems very, very likely that Noah could have built this big of a ship. Um, next slide, please. So how could all the animals fit on the ark, even if he could build such a big ship? Well, if God had built into Adam and Eve the genetic material for all of mankind, one would think that he could have done the same for the animals that he intended to preserve. Think of all the varieties of dogs. I'm a dog person. You guys know this. Um, dogs are kind of similar to wolves and coyotes. So one representative breeding pair could have certainly contained all the genetic material needed for all the variety of animals of that kind. And guess what? The Hebrew language, the original language, allows for that. Now, this makes me happy because we have Labradors, and I, I love our labs. Um, so it's kind of nice to know that they were coming out of that, or possibly. The point here is that if representative groups of animals were housed in the ark, it is possible that the diversity of life that we see today would have been captured in those groups. So there was room for that 
on the ark. And there was room for food and water needed to sustain them for their long voyage on the ark. Now, I've just literally touched on a very large amount of material and research that people have looked at. Um, there's some good material from the Ark Encounter folks that talks about all the, the genetics and the space required and all that stuff that you can, you can look into. Again, this is already a long sermon. not going to go too, too much deeper than that. Now, of course, all those details are interesting. More importantly, they help prove the trustworthiness of God's word. But of course, we need to wrestle with the fact that God planned to destroy all flesh on earth with the flood. Now, perhaps some of you might think that's a, that's a bit harsh. Well, as an engineer, I know a little math, right? And if you do some addition based on the genealogies in chapter 5, guess how many years that God has been patiently putting up with the increasing sin of the majority of mankind? More than 1,500 years. So this wasn't a sudden thing. And it wasn't like there weren't godly men around in that time period. We read about Enoch in the genealogies. God was fully justified in executing justice on his creation, which had descended into extreme sin. But let's learn more about God's redemptive plan chapter 18, or verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food um, that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. All right, so a representative sample of mankind and animal kind were to be preserved. And God would establish a covenant with them. And I see this as a direct counter to Adam and Eve's failure. When given the choice, they disobeyed. Just as without God, we often disobey. We need God to intervene. And so we see God taking the initiative here to establish a covenant with mankind. And we'll talk a little bit more on that later. Now, before we leave this passage, I wanted to revisit that little bit about the Nephilim from verse 4. If you remember that verse 4 reads this like this, the Nephilim were on earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the mighty, the men of renown. I bring it up here because of we talk about you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, and your sons' wives with you. So as we study other parts of Scripture, we, we learn that Nephilim were humans of unusual size, not rodents, humans. <laughs> Thank you. Some people have seen Princess Bride. All right. They were giants, if you will, okay? Yeah. So while we study hu adult humans today, right, we, we see adults typically ranging from anywhere from two to seven feet in height, right? It would seem that these giants were even taller to that than that. 
Now, there's some scholarly debate um, about this particular thing, but uh, if, we, if we read the verses about David and Goliath, right, um, one of the interpretations of that is that Goliath was nearly 10 feet tall. Okay? And when I read this, I wondered, so how did the Nephilim survive the flood? Well, as we read in verse 18, it wasn't just Noah who was saved. We have Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. So eight people. And certainly one of those wives could have either directly or indirectly been related to the Nephilim and thus carried the genetics of the line. Why would that be important, right? Genetics, all this stuff. Well, if we fast forward to the time of Moses, right? We find that the descendants of the Nephilim are living in Canaan. Ah, okay. And remember the spies that went in? Okay, so the spies go in and report back to the Israelites under Moses. And what happened? The people responded in fear. The Nephilim are there. Oh, they're, they're, they're huge. They're going to kill us, right? Instead of trusting God's word. Sounds a lot like Adam and Eve. Perhaps our second chances are linked to times of testing. Times of testing meant to show us our need for repentance and for our need for our Savior instead of trusting in ourselves. A Savior who can help us to be born again by the water and the blood so that we can walk with God as we were meant to do. Let's get back to the text starting chapter 7 verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, and we're going we're gonna to run through a whole bunch of stuff here for the sake of time, so try to follow along. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights. And every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. After seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth went into the ark with Noah two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded them, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. 
the waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. That's 22 and a half feet. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. But God... But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heavens were, the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened up the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days. And again, he sent forth the dove out of the ark and the dove came back to him in the evening. And behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove. And she did not return to him anymore. That's a lot of time, folks. <laughs> That's a lot of time. But in the 601st year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. <sighs> That's a long time and a lot of, a lot of verses to cover. So, God brings forth rain and water from underground. Remember verse 11, right? When we, when we think of this stuff, we always think of just the rain part of it, right? But it says, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and covered the entire earth with water so that even the highest mountains were under those 15 cubits or 22 feet of water. This wasn't just monsoon rain like we experience in the spring, guys. <laughs> it wasn't just a monsoon rain on steroids. All right. Another little geek moment here. So, 
while God certainly can do things supernaturally all he wants, sometimes he does things in a more practical fashion. In case you were doubting that there's enough water available to do the job, guess what scientists reported in 2014? Geologic evidence suggests that there is about three times the total amount of surface water that we know today on the, on the planet, 400 miles down. Okay? It's trapped in special rocks. Seems God has intentionally left us a trail of evidence in his creation to continue to verify the truth of Scripture when we rightly understand that evidence. Sounds a little like Romans 1, verses 18 to 23 to me. Check that out for yourselves. All right. Connor, Seth, all you engineers, geek out with me one more time here. Right? We Coloradans are, are, are proud of our 58 14ers, right? So let's assume that the 14ers were the, the highest mountains on the earth at the time. Well, if we're at sea level and the water was 22 feet above one of our precious 14ers, right? The water pressure down here at sea level, 6,261 PSI. That's a lot more that's in your tires, guys. Now, <laughs> Mount, Mount Everest, okay? Mount Everest is currently listed at 29,032 feet above sea level, okay? If you were at sea level and the water was 22 feet above Everest, 12,000 PSI of water. Nothing's going to survive that. That's crazy. We can't even imagine that. Now, keep in mind, mountains aren't static, right? Over long periods of time, they can grow and shrink as the various plates, like tectonics, move around, right? So we have no way of knowing how high the tallest mountains were in Noah's time. Now, I bring up the math here because that incredibly large volume of water from a global flood and the kind of pressures it could exert on the Earth, with some of that possibly having been come up from that 400-mile down reserve, right? You can start to imagine how God might have used that to reshape the earth. Now, that's not in the text, but it may help us to see some better alignment between Scripture and some of the geologic evidence we see in the created world. All right, back to Noah. I'm done geeking out for now, okay? He and his crew and his zoo spent about a year on the ark, okay? Imagine that. <laughs> Eight humans, a whole bunch of animals of different kinds locked in an ark for a year, okay? All the air-breathing creatures that were not on the ark died in the water, right? Even, even the birds, if you think about it, they have no place to land and rest, right? There's no food, really. Um, but with that, the earth would have been cleansed of all the corruption and violence in a matter not unlike baptism. In fact, Peter would connect those dots in the third chapter of his first epistle, chapter, verse 20. Because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but in his appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God, way back then, is already giving us those clues about baptism. Also, those in the ark were also, in a way, closed in a womb of sorts, if you think about it. And they experienced a new birth, right? When you be born again, right? Once the water subsided and the doors were opened, they were given a second chance. 
It was a shadow and a type of what the promised Christ would bring. We also saw the first use of the dove as God's bringer of hope, right? This should remind us of the Gospels, right? The Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descended on Jesus after his baptism. Interesting. Connection, start to finish in Scripture. Now, one other thing I noted is we, we never read of Noah saying anything in all these exchanges. God's talking to Noah, right? Very little is recorded about his life other than we know that God counted him as righteous. And we know he was obedient and actually built the ark. And in these next verses, we'll see his response of thankfulness to God. Chapter 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike, ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be on upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Again, we see lots of repetition in these passages, which shows the importance that God places on it. So with Noah's response of praise and thankfulness to God for creation's second chance, God responds with blessing and some ground rules. In fact, we see shadows of the law of Moses in the use of clean animals, the warning not to eat the blood of animals, and that eye-for-an-eye caution about murder. Ah, but wait, there's more. Verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. 
God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. While only man is created in God's image, it's fascinating that God specifically establishes a covenant not only with mankind, but with every living creature in giving them all a second chance. It's an interesting promise considering that animals are not moral creatures. Let's consider Paul's thought from Romans 8, 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So there's something substantial in God's promise not to destroy all the living creatures he created. Remember that God called all of his creation good, right, at the beginning, and had tasked mankind with helping to take care of it. And while full redemption as we know it under the covenant of grace was still in the future, and of course full restoration of creation is yet to come, a reminder of that hope to come would be present whenever sunshine breaks through the storm clouds. What a beautiful thought. Now, as much as I would like to end right there, we can't forget about the judgment part of this narrative. Now, God delayed judgment, right? 1,500 years. That's a long time to give people a chance to straighten up. But he did execute a just sentence and took action against the rampant sin that had inundated his creation. Now, we we don't understand why or how long he delays. Only that his intention is to provide opportunities for people to repent and turn to him. As we read in 2 Peter chapter 3, But do not overlook, overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Remember the context here. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done will be exposed. For those of us who are in Christ, we shouldn't sin all the more that grace may abound when he does show us grace in not allowing us to feel the full impact of our sins. He's being gracious to us. It's not an excuse to sin. We only hurt ourselves when we do that. We chain ourselves back up to the sins that kept us from the love and joy and peace and forgiveness that's only available through Jesus. But whatever trials you're facing, even in the most heinous of storms, look for the rainbow. Look for the sun, Jesus Christ, breaking through the storm clouds. Oh, the clouds may still be there, but hope will be there too. For those who aren't in Christ, he's offering you a second chance. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, or what you've done. That rainbow is a reminder of both God's judgment, which awaits sinners, and the hope that he offers through Jesus to those who would repent. 
the humans and animals of Noah's time who perished, they just kept right on in their corruption and their violence until the water rose up over their heads and it was too late. The door to the ark was closed. Don't get caught in the flood. Matthew 24 says this, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. If the worship team would come on up. So what should our response be when he gives us a second chance? <laughs> Take it, folks. Take it. <laughs> I mean, it's that simple. <laughs> Repent, right? And as Noah did with his sacrifices, give glory and honor to God who gave you that second chance. So the people of Noah's time, as we just read, were unaware of the coming flood. Likewise for us, we don't know when Jesus will be coming back. But friend, you'd best be ready when he does. I don't say this to scare you into the kingdom, folks, though God's judgment is indeed terrible. But the truth is you're missing out today, right now, on the love and joy and peace and forgiveness that's available to you when you walk with God like Noah through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we all are so in need of second chances. And you have so graciously given them to us through Jesus Christ. For those who may be listening today who don't know Jesus, I pray that the guilt they feel from sin, that the discontent they have with their life, that they, they realize it's because they're, they're not walking with God. God has all these beautiful things available to those who are in Christ. All those sins that, <laughs> that seem to want to satisfy and give us joy, it's just death. But in Christ, we are right with God. And for those of us who may feel the guilt of our past sins or are just struggling under the weight of trials we're facing, there's hope. We look at the rainbow at the end of a storm or in the middle of a storm. We know that Christ is walking alongside of us. And I pray that when we, we do recognize our sin and our need to repent, we would take it seriously. And we would just confess openly to God, lay it out there, and allow his Holy Spirit to cleanse our hearts and to help us walk forward in Jesus through his strength and to his glory. It's his name we pray.